Welcome to Cinema Talk, the podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. While our campus theaters remain closed, the Cinematheque continues its series of view-at-home movies with The 20th Century, which filmmaker Matthew Rankin was originally scheduled to present at our Wisconsin Film Festival in April. The perfect film for those of us who are sick to death of contemporary politics, this glorious, ludicrous delight rewinds to an even crazier campaign in the improbably cutthroat political landscape of Toronto, 1899. Very loosely based on William Lyon Mackenzie King, the real-life 10th Prime Minister of Canada, the film ushers us into a gorgeously realized faux technicolor dreamscape, rife with surreal sex and non-stop backstabbing. The impossible-to-synopsize plot is a screwball send-up of Canadian national identity, leading its characters through a veritable ice maze of repression. Jam-packed with jokes and dazzling to behold, the 20th century is guaranteed to be the most fun you have watching political machinations all year. The Cinematheque is providing a limited number of opportunities to view the 20th century at home for free. To receive instructions on how to view at home, simply send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu with the subject line, Canada. Our guest this week is Matthew Rankin, the writer, director, and editor of the 20th century. After a series of virtuoso short films like the Tesla World Light, which played our 2018 Wisconsin Film Festival, the 20th century expands Rankin's unique cinematic vision to feature length for the first time. The film has won prizes at the Berlin, Toronto, and Los Cabos Film Festivals, and was nominated for eight Canadian Screen Awards, winning four. Here's our conversation. Uh, Matthew Rankin, welcome to Cinema Talk. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So, what's most immediately striking about your film is its incredible design. So, I'd like to start off there. Um, you've created a whole world here in which the sets, costumes, and colors are as essential to your film as the script, which is very funny and entertaining in its own right. How do you intertwine these two aspects when you're conceptualizing the movie? Are you storyboarding simultaneously with scripting? Or are these separate processes for you? Yeah. Um, when I am writing, I, I at a certain point, I like to start drawing because um, I feel like there's a certain thing that the drawing hand knows that at least my writing word using brain doesn't know. So I, I find it's a good way to sort of tap into my subconscious and sort of figure out the images and stuff like that. So um, I, I do do a lot of drawing while I'm writing, but then um, I did do a very, very elaborate storyboard of each image in the film and, um, you know, um, hundreds of conceptual drawings, which is really great because it's, you know, it's a thing where, um, you know, people can look at it and uh, they can see right away what it is. They know how it should be lit. They know how it should feel. And of course, that's really useful for the production designer, but also the director of photography and even the actors. I like to show the actors, you know, how things will look and the costume people and all this. So, um, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that form should uh, kind of incarnate content as much as possible. And, you know, when I was sort of kind of in the very most embryonic stages of working on this project, I knew, of course, um, that it was a period piece. It takes place in Toronto in 1899. I also knew that there was no chance on this earth I would get any kind of, you know, 
legitimate budget to make mm -hmm. a period piece. I would have this sort of dollar store kind of budget, whatever I could build out of the dollar store. And, and I kind of came to the conclusion that if I were to make a virtue out of that limitation and sort of work in a tradition of cinematic artifice, uh, then my budget could go much further. I wouldn't have to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, fail at trying to imitate Spielbergian gloss. I could you know, go really, really deep with this very artificial world. But that wasn't sort of enough for me. What I figured out when, when that really kind of like kicked in, I was like, okay, yeah, that's the way to do it, was um, when that idea, for me, it felt like something that could incarnate the kind of conceit of the movie itself. Like this whole movie is about uh, Mackenzie King and his nation building project. And I wanted the viewer to be kind of confronted by the, artificiality of nation so so the design was a way of like uh reminding uh the viewer in literally every frame that what they're seeing is fake it's this it's this artificial structure that's being grafted upon the nat the natural world and these artificial structures in this case are often sort of practical objects that you're building and placing in front of the camera as opposed to other means people might use to achieve that look yeah um, how are you able to realize these designs on, you say, this dollar store budget? What kind of materials do you use? Uh, well, you know, there was a lot of cardboard. Uh, there was a, lo a lot of, I mean, you know, cheap stuff you can get at the dollar store. Um, is You know, um, it, it's, it's all, um, I, you know, I, my brain is kind of an analog one. You know, some of my best friends are computers, but I, I don't really know how to make films with them very well. So... I like to try to figure out practical stuff. Um, I was really inspired by Carl Zeman, the the Czech animator who did all these kind of um, really amazing mid-century films in Czechoslovakia of, of uh, um, you know, using human actors and animated segments and compositing them together with um, force perspectives and optical printing and stuff like that. And that was my big ambition going going in, I wanted to build like little miniatures and through forced perspectives, integrate actors into these, you know, very, uh, you know, overwhelming large landscapes and stuff. But, but this, um, you know, this was really hard to do. So, <laughs> uh, we did like a couple shots like that, but, uh, at a certain point, the producers were like, you have to stop using up all this time doing those. So midway through the production, I, I just decided to, to relegate it to animation. So, mm -hmm. I built myself sort of this Lotta Reiniger uh, jerry rig um, and with three plates of glass lit from below. And, and I made really all the kind of wide shots that you see in the movie. They were all made with this using hmm. colored translucent paper and colored vellums. And, and so uh, I was able to kind of build big landscapes that way and integrate them, uh, integrate the actors into that uh, I did do I, that. Was the one digital intervention? Is uh, I wondered about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's the, there's the one digital intervention, but there's no there's nothing computer generated. Like all the images are are created um, by hand, but uh, there's there's a few that are put together uh, mm -hmm. digitally. But the silhouette animations you did on by hand, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Those are all done with with in my apartment. That's fantastic. Um, you know, in some of your recent shorts, these techniques are even more pronounced. Um, our listeners may recall uh, your short, The Tesla World Light, 
when we screened it at the Wisconsin Film Festival a few years ago. In the making of this movie, you burned through something like 15,000 sparklers. Um, Another short, Minarski Death Plummet, has 21,000 hand-painted frames. Um, These are big numbers for movies that are less than 10 minutes long a piece and like sort of overwhelming technical feats. Um, With the 20th century, you've stayed true to this practical um, ethic, you know, practical effect ethic, as you've sort of described here, but tilted it more towards a conventional narrative. How do you, um, can you talk about bringing these ideas from these more experimental shorts into the world of narrative filmmaking? Yeah, I guess, uh, well, you know, with a short, you can, you can really get experimental and dive deep into abstraction and, you know, with a minimum amount of punishment, uh, from, (laughs) from the viewer, I think, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in what I like to call fun formalism, like, uh, all of those films like Tesla, Minarski, they do have a, a kind of a narrative thread to them. Sure. Uh, but but they do sort of they are driven into uh, total abstraction at a certain point. Mm. Um, but they're still sort of within the realm of what I like to call fun formalism, meaning you know it's like um, you know it's not just a process based thing. Like again, the form is sort of incarnating the the driving theme, the driving narrative idea, and and that you know those two shorts, the the ambition with those was to try to take the the language. The cinematic language of abstract avant-garde filmmaking, um, you know, uh, Stan Brakhage, Norman McLaren, Len Lai, uh, uh, Evelyn Lambert, um, uh, you know, Takashi Ito is a great influence. Um, take, taking all the kind of um, work of these great formalists and try to tell a story with them, try to use that language to build emotion, build character and, uh, you know, uh, and, and tell a little story. This one, um, you know, I, I still feel like in a way it's doing that. There's, there isn't, um, the, the world of the film is a very abstract one, but it is, um, it is more upfront, I guess, in its, in its narrative, um, uh, undertaking. But I think, you know, honestly, to, to be honest, that kind of comes from the story itself. It's uh, it's all based on Mackenzie King's diary, and anyone who keeps a diary, as I do, I'm a, I'm a lifelong diarist, um, and anyone who keeps a diary knows what a melodramatic, um, overly empurpled, uh, completely maudlin and ridiculous document uh, a, a personal diary is, and. Uh, you know, uh, Mackenzie King's uh, uh, maudlin outbursts were kind of the big, <laughs> the big inspiration for this. I just saw so much of myself in his, you know, uh, passive-aggressive, self-pitying, uh, you know, bargain-hunting, whatever. Um, so, so that was just sort of innately narrative. It was about trying to, you know, give voice to that, um, and it wasn't really something that became. Um, abstract. It was it was something more concrete. So you know it was really guided by the idea. Um, mm-hmm. But you know it's it's one of those things. I, I think uh, you know there's certain beats that people do expect from a feature film, and I think it's you know if you're going to do something kind of out there and experimental, I think it's it's still kind of good to hit those beats. Um, like I even think like Eraserhead, which is you know a deeply abstract movie. Um, is still hitting, uh, you know, all those all those conventional beats, right? So, it's um, but it's certainly not a conventional film, right? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, since you're you brought up Mackenzie King, um, who's of course the subject of this movie, and your films all feel sort of fantastic and otherworldly, and it can be surprising to remember that they are based on real people frequently. You know, not only Mackenzie King, Tesla, Minarski Death Plummet is a real story. Um what is it that draws you to these real stories and take them in, you know, what kind of inspiration do you take from them? And then I guess, you know, why Mackenzie King in particular? Yeah. Well, you know, I have been the victim of a certain amount of, um, you know, well, just just a, two months ago, um, a professor, the, the leading Mackenzie King scholar in Canada, <laughs> uh, Christopher Dummett, he, he, uh, he issued a very stern reprimand to me for this movie. And, went on this, you know, long stenographer's tirade about how the facts are all wrong and this kind of stuff. And, 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 and you know, that's, that's legit. I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, I could put a disclaimer saying, okay, there was no actually, there was not actually an ejaculating cactus in Mackenzie mm. King's room. Um, you know, all this could be, I, I could be more upfront, but at the same point, at the same time, I sort of think that uh, no one is going to walk away from this movie thinking that it's real. Uh, mm. The question I get all the time in all of these films is how much of this is real, how much of it is fiction. And I actually think that's a really great tension for a viewer to have when they watch a historical film. You know, historians typically hate historical films because the power of cinema to create a simulacrum of reality is so irresistible, mm-hmm. so so deeply, deeply visceral and credible, um, you know, that there's this fear that you know, a, a filmmaker tampering with the historical record will just overwhelm us and we'll take it as historical fact. I mean, it's why I say that, you know, Steven Spielberg, I really think of as like the greatest living American historian, because I think way more of us have encountered the American past through Spielberg films than we have reading Howard Zinn, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a danger in there and, and historians are right to get pedantic about that. Um, like I remember I had this one professor who devoted like a whole lecture to um, Leonardo DiCaprio's teeth in Titanic. And she was saying uh, about how there's just no way that someone in 1912 who's that poor would have such beautiful teeth. His teeth would be rotten. They'd be falling out of his head. And, you know, it's one of those things like it, it always involves some sort of translation. And, you know, maybe James Cameron like really did his homework and, you know, figured out sort of the the dental profile of, you know, characters of that era. But he probably came to the conclusion that his romantic plot wasn't going to work if Leo's teeth were, you know, falling out of his head and stuff. So, you know, he cheated. Um, but, you know, the thing is that that even historians do this, even just organizing, arranging uh, the, 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 the chronology of the past into beginning, middle and end, that also is a fiction. Like, that's not history. This is this is us imposing an order upon history, right? And uh, and a lot of times that just sort of washes over us and we accept it as fact. But see, this is why I was kind of, you know, I sort of felt like historians would warm to this approach that I've been kind of working on is, is that it's so blatant about its fictions, right? Like it's absolutely blatant about, um, you know, all of its embellishments and and it leaves the viewer in this state where they have to question what they're seeing. And uh, I actually think that's really good. Like, I, I sort of, you know, uh, figured that historians would get behind that. But, um, you know, uh, maybe that was too uh, 
too much to expect. You're getting a deeper <laughs> truth. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, th- but the thing is also that these historical films and biopics are often such a sort of stage genre where you're just, you know, predictable points are always hit. Um, and you've completely avoided falling into this trap and come up with something much more fun and engaging. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are real people, you know, Mackenzie King is not the only real person in this movie. There was a real, mm-hmm. you know, Tart and Harper and all these people, of course, you know, they yeah. existed differently. Um, but I guess my point is you mentioned, uh, James Cameron having done his homework on the dental records. You did your <laughs> homework in this movie, right? There, there's more homework in this movie than might appear at first blush. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I do come from an academic background. I was sort of, you know, um, um, you know, kind of, you know, on the verge of becoming like a history professor. But I, I came to the conclusion that I was not a scientist. I wasn't interested in, um, you know, data that you could measure. Like, there's a whole part of our lived experience through time that can, can never be measured by academic historians because it's just not their realm of study. Like, what is the history? I mean, we spend so much of our life dreaming, right? And um, that is also part of our lived experience, but it's not something that historians have ever been able to measure, and therefore it falls outside of their realm of study. Um, I've always described this film as a as a nightmare that Mackenzie King might have had, like around 1901. <laughs> I've never described it as a biopic. It's like it, it's it's about his subconscious, not his his waking life, you know. And and like like a nightmare, uh, all of the people in his life and events and feelings and tensions and textures, uh, they're all fed through this kind of um, psychotropic prism. Um, and and I think that's you know that that is a that is something that you know that's an engagement with the past that art can do, which which history cannot. But it is still a, you know, I still think of it as as you know, uh, his, you know. Um, uh, like a serious engagement with the past, you know? Mm-hmm. You mentioned this film as being like, you describe it as being a nightmare Mackenzie King might've had. Um, but it's, you know, one of the strange things to think about is that for all the weird things that happened to him in this movie, he had ex- eccentricities that go beyond what you depict in the film. <laughs> like he was into like seances, communicating with the dead, his dead dog, you know, um, yeah. this kind of stuff would seem right at home in your film. That's true. That's the this film is sort of a it's kind of a genesis story. Like he gets into ectoplasm and dog worship and this kind of stuff later on in his life as sort of a middle-aged bachelor. Um and he's really lonesome. That's the thing about Mackenzie King I find sort of really interesting. He's really he's really alone. Um so but this is about him as a youth. It's it's mm-hmm. about him as a young person. And so yeah, so it's kind of a genesis story of his his later uh, ectoplasmic enthusiasm. But yeah, he was a great character. Yeah. Well, I mean, all these characters, which you sort of treat in an almost public domain kind of way, where you're able to do whatever you like with them. Um, <laughs> but as much as it's about uh, Mackenzie King, this film seems also really what it's about to be Canadian. Uh, it's loaded with all kinds of very specific jokes about Canadian self-image. Um, can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the movie? Sure. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a few little, um, you know, there's a couple little bits in there that are kind of really for Canadians, I guess. I mean, there's, I I would say there's like maybe kind of two absolute Canadian kind of in-jokes. 
like one really big laugh in Canada is there's the, when he arrives in Winnipeg and um, this uh, denuded uh, street urchin approaches and says, welcome to Winnipeg. That always gets like a huge laugh in Canada because Winnipeg is just an object of condescension for, for Canadians. So seeing Winnipeg in this sort of hellish form is very funny to them. Um, you know, when I showed the film in Berlin, uh, it was that was just complete silence. The you know the Germans were just like, oh well, yes, of course, this is Winnipeg. This is you know, <laughs> they just sort of accepted it. <laughs> uh, so you know, there's a little bit of this, but it's um, you know, it's sort of like, um, but you know, and 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 some people got nervous about that, particularly in Canada. C Canadians tend to think that no one would you know ever be interested in story that is uh, about Canada or has something Canadian about it. Um, you know, um, films shot in Toronto routinely frame out the CN Tower so that maybe somebody might think it's actually New York, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very Canadian sort of reaction to, to stuff. But, you know, I, I, I really think it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, you can appreciate Monty Python without knowing who Oliver Cromwell is, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's a similar kind of kind of thing. Also, I mean, I think that's the pleasure of cinema too, is sort of being in another world that you don't necessarily know about, and uh, you know, you see it precisely defined, and it has a you know a very enchanting effect. I know so much about Brooklyn from watching American films, right? I I, I knew so much about Brooklyn before ever visiting Brooklyn. And then I remember I went to watch movies in New York for like a whole week and almost every movie about New York had like some joke about New Jersey in it. And the mm -hmm. audience just lapped it up. Like any joke about New Jersey was hilarious, always, you know? Mm -hmm. And I realized, yeah, I've sort of grown up with all these Jersey jokes. But they just sort of washed over my head. I never really, you know, I didn't really understand what that meant, but, but, uh, but I was really, you know, getting into it, seeing these New Yorkers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think New this. Jersey. I think the specificity is a real asset for your movie, um, and there's ways in which it feels sort of like a reverse propaganda film, um, where it plays into sort of uh, the image of Canada with oceanic levels of repression or whatever, instead of the <laughs> confidence and hubris we usually see in a movie like this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is it is sort of a it's like a parallel Canada. And that's that's really true even for Canadian audiences. I mean, they're, you know, um it's like a Canada on Mars, right? So, it's it's not, you know, it even Canadians have to kind of figure out what it is and what it's doing. Um but uh yeah. So So yeah. So but yeah, it's it's uh, you know, it's a <laughs> it's a strange thing. Yeah, you mentioned Winnipeg also as uh, this sort of subterranean brothel, black market kind of hellscape, um, the flesh pots of Winnipeg, it's called in the movie. Um, you're based in Montreal, but Winnipeg is where you're from, right? Um, it's where I grew up, yeah. Yeah, so and many of your, you know, you many of your earliest, earliest shorts were explicitly about Winnipeg, Minutia. Um, you found an early filmmaking home in the Winnipeg Film Group which has also been a base for people like Guy Madden, who seems a kindred spirit, as well as John Pace, who directed another oddball Winnipeg movie uh, from the 80s called Crime Wave, which we showed in our festival a few years ago. And I was So good. That's so cool you showed that. That's like a criminally underknown movie. Absolutely. Um, I was reminded of it while watching yours. 
And so at least from the outside, there seems to be kind of a shared sensibility among these directors coming out of Winnipeg. And I'm curious to what extent you feel like Winnipeg has informed your filmmaking over the years and what your relationship is like with it today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have to say that, you know, um, as much as I sort of, you know, an earlier version of myself um, had some maudlin ambition to kind of overcome Winnipeg and to be like a cosmopolitan person, um, I really am fundamentally uh, just a backwoods hillbilly. All of my, <laughs> everything I know about filmmaking, uh, I really learned uh, at the Winnipeg Film Group with, you know, Guy Madden, John Pays, Saul Nagler, um, uh, all of these great wizards, uh, all of my masters are all kind of Winnipeg people. Um, and it's true. It's, it's, a, it's a very singular filmmaking community. Um, and you could, you know, I, I really think there is kind of a Winnipeg thing going on. Guy, mm -hmm. of course, is the most uh, well-known uh, of all the Winnipeggers and you know um and he's a he's a very um beatific queen bee to all of us and a real inspiration um but I, I would say that you know uh the Winnipeggers are kind of united by a, a coherent set of obsessions and pathologies that you find again and again in not only in film but in uh visual art like I think of Marcel Zama like I think of his world as you know very much a a Winnipeg world. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's something going on there and, and it's uh, still very, very much part of, um, part of my life and part of my practice. And I, I guess it's sort of, you know, it's composite parts sort of involve, um, I would say weird outsider art kind of humor and, and a kind of very oddball, uh, reappropriation of outmoded cinematic vocabularies, mm -hmm. uh, which are marshaled into creating, uh, you know, personal personal films. Um, my, my whole the, the the stream of that that I feel I come out uh, directly is is a little bit closer to Solomon Nagler, who's a, a filmmaker I really love, and and his his whole thing was uh, about using abstraction. Um, you know, reappropriating the language of abstract filmmaking uh, for to 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 make personal uh, pseudo narrative work. Uh, so yeah, so I feel really I really feel really close to that community. It's it's um, it's uh, it's very much part of part of what I've been doing. Some of this stylization that you're talking about comes down to the performances as well, where they all hit this very specific tone that you're after. This would seem to me to be the most extensively you've worked with actors. Um, I have to imagine this isn't the kind of line reading that they're used to giving necessarily, but everyone feels like they're in on the joke. Um, so what was it like to integrate this kind of performance into your cinematic world? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the casting was a really deep, deep process. And it's true. All of the actors sort of had to walk this very, very fine line between earnestness and irony. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was sort of what I was looking for in, um, uh, you know, in the casting. And there's a number of things that set the tone. The, I think, you know, I think doing the storyboard in as much detail as I did, um, you know, that was a good tuning fork for people. I also think the dialogue is is somewhat strange, and uh, you know the, the the way words are 
spoken in the script um, is in something of a parallel universe. And but I think also casting the lead role, Dan Byrne, um, really sets sets the tone for the whole piece. Uh, Dan is, you know, an, an amazingly gifted comic actor um, and he's able to um, walk this. He's uh, it's it's a very particular skill. He's able to, you know, do summon very, very tender, very vulnerable emotions uh, mm-hmm. while still being very funny mm-hmm. <laughs> and very yeah. real. And it's uh, that's a that's a real bizarre hat trick. Uh, and so but but that's that's really what you know, that's what this was all about. It was it's about sort of nailing that tone. But it was really fun. Like, you know, the actors uh, uh, all, you know, they were all able to get into that gonzo frequency. And it's quite a bit different from, uh, you know, the kind of performance they, they typically do. So, uh, you know, it had it it was about finding people who were not only inspired by by that uh, that challenge, but um, uh, you know who, who but who could really you know uh, tap into that frequency and and really be animated by it. This cast is also totally free from gender constructs in a wonderful way. We have men playing women and vice versa to the point where it's all feels pretty ambiguous. Um, it really works for the film. Is this like a philosophy that you had going in, or is it just sort of how it shook out in casting? Yeah, you know, it's it's that's something people remark upon, and I have to say, I didn't really think about that too closely uh, while I was doing the casting. Um, I just, I just, it just that just seemed completely normal to me uh, for for this movie. Um, I think I I sort of wanted to have like a school play approach to this kind of movie, you know, like in a school play, uh, you know, there's a role for everybody and it's about sort of choosing the right person and you can have your, you know, like the, your artful dodger doesn't have to be cockney or even a dodger, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and your captain Von Trapp doesn't have to be Swiss, uh, and he will be played by a child. So, <laughs> so I mean, there's there's a suspension of disbelief that is kind of welcome in a school play, and I like that. I find that really utopian and kind of beautiful. And and in theater more broadly, like above and beyond the school play, I think, um, you know, casting across uh, demographic lines is something that is a lot more normal. Um, in film, we don't do that really. I mean, virtually ever, and it's... You know, I think that real reveals something about our bias of how we understand reality, you know, and that bias might not really be serving us that well, right? That's something I thought about after the fact. But in the moment, I was really just um, trying to choose the right person for the, the right role. And it's like, uh, you know, the right spirit for the part um, above and beyond any kind of, you know, any kind of the demographic analysis we typically do when we're casting a film. Well, to move from the utopia of your casting to the actual content of the story, um, it depicts this kind of like milquetoast centrist guy who's caught between political extremes. And in this way, you know, Toronto 1899 can feel oddly familiar to those of us right now who are living right now. Um, can you talk about, you know, the polit- the contemporary relevance of this movie? Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I don't really think of it like as a polemical or an activist film or, you know, um, 
there's no ideological program driving it, mm-hmm. but it is sort of looking at um, forms of leadership, you know, and how, um, you know, we can, we are able to, you know, lead, we are able to create political energy out of the very worst expression of our collective selves and how on the other end of the spectrum, I, what I just described for me, that is the easiest way to lead people is to just fill them with nightmares. Mm -hmm. Um, the much, the hardest way I think to, to lead people is to inspire, uh, the very best expression of what they're capable of. Um, but that does happen sometimes. And then, uh, the, but the subject of this movie is really very much in the center of that. I think of Mackenzie King as a person who walked this very, very cautious and gingerly line between the Armageddon and utopia of his day and um, was always very, very careful about protecting his political power. There are a number of times throughout his career where he had to choose between doing what he knew to be right uh, and doing what he knew would protect his political power. And he always chose to protect himself. And it's one of those things, you know, the, the, I feel like we're, we are in this sort of era right now where like the ideological elastic is uh, kind of reaching its snapping point. And it's hard to be an idealist now, I think, you know, like I call BS is about as idealistic as we can get. And, you know, that has a lot to do with the fact that there's this irredeemably toxic counter idealism that has been gestating. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's hard. And, and, and what the center means is becoming uh, more and more untenable, I, I, I think. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, but that, that is McKenzie King's genius. That was his whole thing was uh, he was a radical centrist, a radical compromiser. And I think uh, if we're generous about the center, we could say, well, that's a space of, you know, real democracy. It's, it's a space where... I'm willing to listen to you and to you and to you. I acknowledge that there are many legitimate options uh, for a democratic society. Uh, I'm all about fair play and togetherness. I mean, these are all, you know, these are Joseph R. Biden Jr. chestnuts, right? Um, and, and there's a value to that, I think. Uh, really, there is. But I think also, you know, a more cynical approach, a less generous view on centrism could see it as a a very opportunistic posture, one that is, you know, uh, uh, just leading us into the most compromised version of ourselves to the point that we don't even mean anything, that nothing, nothing can happen ever. And, uh, you know, and what might happen, in fact, uh, is we might just end up enabling, um, you know, very insidious gerrymandering, right? So, the, you know, the, the film makes no prognostication about about that, but it's uh, it is something that is preoccupying me. It's it's, uh, you know, the this what the center means and what the center can do. And, you know, it's uh, it, it's, you know, the center is not the best expression of ourselves, but we know it's certainly not the worst. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so what is the you know, what is the value of that now? It's, it's a it's a it's a question the movie is preoccupied with, but it's it's not, you know, it's not trying to instruct anybody on how they should think. Right, of course. Um, well, since we've brought it back here to Mackenzie King, I suppose for my last question, I just am curious if you have any thoughts on what you think Mackenzie King would make of all this. 
Yeah. You know, like, what would he, um, if he saw this movie, what would he have to say about <laughs> it? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. It's some, you know, people have asked that. I, I'm, I'm, I like to believe that, um, you know, when, when people die, uh, I sort of like to believe that they are freed, uh, from whatever, um, uh, anguish and torment and turmoil held them back, uh, during their, uh, existence. So I, I like to think that Mackenzie King is free of his shame now and, um, you know, would, would be able to look upon this with some tenderness. It's, it, it is a, you know, he, he, he is a person that I love. I, I wouldn't have voted for him, but I do, uh, love him as a person. Um, and I see so much of myself in him. Um, and that's really what was kind of driving this, um, and I will say, you know, quite openly that even his worst qualities, uh, I see them as my own. So, uh, I, you know, and I wouldn't say that I see as my own his best qualities, but the worst expression of Mackenzie King, <laughs> I, I do see a lot of my, my, my own self in, in that. So, um, uh, you know, the, the piss take is on me just as, as much as it would be on him. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. And uh, everyone should definitely check out your movies. Great. Awesome. Really wonderful to chat with you.